Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present and has currently reached the reign of Charlemagne. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Pontifex is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 94, for real this time, Pope Stephen II. Ooh, another Stephen. Which also makes him potentially Pope Stephen III, thanks to the whole confusion of last week. Now, I say last week, but it's actually been forever (laughs) since we recorded last. So in case you forgot, the last man to be elected to the papacy was also called Stephen and would have been Stephen II if he had not immediately died before being consecrated. But since then, there's been some change to when a pope is officially considered a pope, so sometimes he skews the numbering. Is it unlucky to just pick up the same name as the man who died directly in front of you? I mean, that would be true if... If he had chosen that name, but this is this is his name. It just this happens. This is just to... his real name. His name, unfortunately, ends up being the same. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. And one more point of note before we begin. So, aside from Pope Sylvester, Stephen has the longest Liber Pontificalis entry that we've seen so far. Like it is so long, and is made even longer in the copy that I have by Raymond Davis because of the footnotes. He has 25 pages, Sylvester had 29, and remember what an important pope Sylvester was. So, he's episode 35. But this is really interesting as well, because we're definitely going to see some similarities between Stephen and Sylvester as we go. What's more, the editor of this particular segment of the Liber Pontificalis, Raven Davis, comments that Stephen's entry is particularly good and suggests that it might even be from a contemporary chronicler. So the person who wrote this might have been alive, actually witnessing Stephen do his thing. That's cool. That's cool. It, it means it scores a little bit better than usual for accuracy. However, Raymond Davis also points out that the style of this chronicler is, quote, tedious with an excessive use of epithets. And... This is entirely true, so we will not be quoting from it at length, because literally every time someone is named, they are either of blessed memory or the wicked heretic. Like, they never just say someone's name. It makes it so much longer. (laughs) So, if you were doing a drinking game, uh, you would die. Mm -hmm. On to Stephen. Stephen was born in Rome, and his father was called Constantine, and he had a brother called Paul. Just make a note of Paul. I will attempt to make a note of Paul. 
And according to historian John Julius Norwich in his Absolute Monarchs, A History of the Papacy, the family was part of the Roman aristocracy. So I went and I did a little digging, which this is not super unusual at this point, but George Williams, author of Papal Genealogy, suggests that they were members of the Di Bobone family, which later on becomes the Orsini family, which would mean that they are part of a future family that will become massively influential and means that they are also collateral ancestors to at least three other popes, Celestine III, Nicholas III, and Benedict XIII. Unfortunately, Stephen and Paul were orphaned quite young in life and were taken in by the church to be raised there. The Liber Pontificalis says, He stayed in the venerable Lateran chamber to learn the teaching passed on from the apostles, and that he was, quote, promoted through the orders of the church one by one, then ordained to the order of the diaconate. And this was true for his brother Paul as well. So what this means is that Stephen might have had one of the earliest church careers out of any of our popes, and also served in every clerical role as he went along. He wasn't just like a deacon and then a priest. He went through literally every role because they had him for so long. This also meant that he was extremely likely to be known really well by the whole of the Roman clergy and had lots of opportunity to build his reputation. He was then promoted to be a cardinal sometime around 750 by Pope Zachary and would have been present at the election of the Pope-elect Stephen that we covered last week and then also, of course, at his funeral. <laughs> and then our Stephen gets elected unanimously to replace him on March 26, 752. The Liber Pontificalis says, after Pope-elect Stephen died, quote, God's whole people gathered within the venerable Basilica Santa Maria Maggiore, where they all prayed for our Lord God's mercy and that of Our Lady, God's Mother, the Holy and Ever-Virgin Mary herself, and with good spirit, they harmoniously elected themselves the above-mentioned holy man as pontiff. My thoughts are that the Pope Stephen memorabilia was already in production, and this was the easiest way to keep the ball rolling. Let's just, let's just elect another Stephen. We're already used to saying Pope Stephen. Let's make this happen. We're already here. And as we mark the beginning of Stephen's papacy, we must also acknowledge that it also marks another important beginning. Our last pope, Zachary, marked the end of the Byzantine papacy as the last pope within the Roman sphere of the Byzantine Empire, because things are now about to change. So Stephen then marks the beginning of what is called the Frankish papacy period, where, for reasons we're about to see, the papacy is going to tie itself very strongly to the Frankish kings, and cause a significant shift that is very much going to leave lasting changes on the church and papal rule as a whole. But we're going to see this play out, so we'll have much more to analyze as we go. So why do the Frankish kings become so important in this next development of the papacy? We've already seen a small establishment of relationship. You know, we looked at Pope Gregory III seeking military assistance from Charles Martel, and then last week we discussed how Pope Zachary had supported the deposition of the last Merovingian king in favor of Pepin the Short. But so far, this isn't really major. It's not really as much a relationship. So there's got to be something that precipitates this momentous change. Do you have any guesses? 
I literally have no guesses. It was the Lombards. <laughs> oh my god. I have forgotten about them again. Every time I ask you, do you have any guesses? It's always the Lombards. <laughs> so... In 751, the new Lombard king, Aistulf, who took over after his brother Rachis had retired as a monk in Rome, he aggressively pursued the potential of a unified Lombard Italy and attacked Ravenna. And he actually captures the city and the cities that belong to the Exarchate, aka the Pentapolis, so those five cities there. And by all accounts, it was a fairly easy takeover, which bolstered Aistulf's confidence. And he was soon declaring himself to be king of the Romans and began openly making preparations to invade Rome, because if he's king of the Romans, that's where his new capital needs to be. I thought the Lombards had, like, everything but that little dumbbell-shaped portion. <laughs> So the little dumbbell-shaped portion would be Ravenna, which they've just taken, and yes. Rome. <laughs> so Now they have all of it. He wants all of it. He's going to come to Rome. He's going to set up his capital. He's going to be king of the Romans. This is his idea. And obviously, this very much alarms the Pope. So he immediately does two things. The first is that he sends his brother Paul and a primasarius called Ambrose to Aistulf as papal legates to try and negotiate some sort of peace deal. And the other thing he does is he writes to the emperor in Constantinople, begging him for assistance. The first, sending Paul and Ambrose to Aistulf, this is a little successful because Paul is able to bribe slash secure a peace treaty with Aistulf for a term of 40 years. But that quickly fell apart when it became clear to Aistulf that peace would only happen when all of Italy was under his control. This is the only way he sees peace happening. You have to give me all of this, then we can be in peace. The second effort, writing to the emperor, was not even a little successful, because just like the last hundred times that the Pope have asked the Byzantine emperor for aid, nothing happens. The emperor's response was that there were no soldiers and no money and Rome was going to have to be on its own. Same thing as usual. And, and to be fair, this time at least it wasn't simply a dismissal or ignoring the fact because the empire over there hasn't been stable for quite a while and they're in the process of battling off the Abbasid Caliphate, the Bulgars, and other invaders on pretty much every border front that they have. But unfortunately, it just happens to fall into that pattern that the answer is always no money, no soldiers, you're on your own. The only advice that the emperor had, and yes, it's still Emperor Constantine V, who is Constantine Pooface, the only advice that Emperor Pooface has was to do what popes had done in other times that the empire had disappointed them. Try and find some other tribal group to come in and distract the Lombards away. And remember, the last time that this happened, the other group that they have to come in and distract the Lombards is the Franks. Stephen takes this advice, and he turns to the Franks and Pepin the Short, who, remember, is now the Frankish king and had been supported by Pope Zachary. So not only is Stephen banking on Pepin being very inclined to help the papacy that bolstered his legitimacy, but he now also knows that Pepin had proven to be no slouch when it came to dealing with military threat. He'd even taken on the Umayyad Caliphate and won at the Siege of Narbonne. But the Pope doesn't just 
write to Pepin, right? Because that has not, writing to the Franks has also not gone super well in terms of support. So he goes to Pepin. And for him, this is serious business. He's got to have all of the personal influence that he can get, right? So he's going to go in person. He's going to make an impression and get the support that Rome needs. So he leaves Rome in October of 753, despite not being in the best condition for traveling. The Liber Pontificalis says, Enfeebled by physical illness, he resolutely set out on the grueling journey in the company of two ambassadors from Francia. So he's an old man, he's sick, but he realizes how incredibly important this is. And on their way, the Liber Pontificalis tells us of yet another omen. When he reached about the 40th mile and the Lombard's borders, one night a great portent appeared in the heavens like a ball of fire setting towards the south from the districts of Gaul to those of the Lombards. So there's a fireball in the sky and it goes from Gaul, Francia, where the Franks are, and it passes over the Lombards. I did try to look into this, but there isn't any data to line up with, like, a known comet or something. Could have been a bright shooting star, but it's also incredibly symbolic, as we will see. And while he's on the way to Pepin in Paris, Pope Stephen stopped in Pavia, the Lombard capital, and attempted once more to find diplomatic peace with Aistolf. So not only is he going to go to Pepin for support, he's like, look, maybe I can do the same thing with the actual Lombard king, and we can just stop all of this now. But the efforts were almost entirely fruitless, and Aistolf only had threats for the Pope. In fact, it's pretty clearly implied that the only reason the Pope was able to leave safely was the pointed suggestion of the Frankish ambassadors of serious reprisals if the Pope came to any harm before he reached Pepin. And apparently, learning that the Pope wasn't just coming to Pavia, but was actually going to Paris as well, made Aistolf, quote, gnash his teeth like a lion. <laughs> I cannot. I'm, my whole brain sees up. Gnash <laughs> his teeth like... <laughs> I rebooted. <laughs> Gnashing his teeth like a lion. Rawr. <laughs> <laughs> But they were, they were able to leave, and they carry on. And, by the way, this journey apparently makes Pope Stephen the first pope to visit Gaul. So it's a little pontifact in there for you. Pontifact! Pope Stephen met Pepin at his palace in Pontheon on January 6th of 754, just in time to celebrate Epiphany. So the two meet and enter into some lengthy negotiations. And the exact details of these negotiations are unclear and the subject of a fair bit of academic discourse. But what we do know is that Pope Stephen asked for Pepin's help with the Lombards. And not only did Pepin agree to come to the Pope's aid, but he also agreed to ensure that any territory that gets won back from the Lombards, like Ravenna and the rest of the Exarchate, would be given to the Pope rather than back to the Empire. So that's a fairly critical point. The Frankish king then brought the Pope to Paris, where he would winter at the Monastery of Saint-Denis, but the journey from Pontheon to Paris was very arduous for the Pope. The Liber Pontificalis tells us, 
At the result of the very grueling journey and the uncertain weather, the blessed Pope was so gravely ill that his own companions and the Franks who were there gave up hope for him. But the inexpressible clemency of our Lord God, who does not abandon those who hope in him, willed the Christian man's recovery. When they were expecting to find him dead by the morning, the next day he was suddenly discovered to be well. Miracles. He was really sick. They all thought when they came to check on him in the morning, he'd be dead. And he's like, hey, guys, what's up? I'm fine. Let's go. Just had some indigestion or something. This is a time where they don't understand medicine. So I can totally see that that must happen a lot more frequently than we're aware. That's fair. Like, sometimes I flop in bed and seem very dead and then I'm fine. I mean, there's a lot of miraculous recoveries. So something to keep in mind. So while the Pope is wintering in his abbey and recovering from whatever illness or indigestion he had, Pepin sent ambassadors to Aistolf. Not only did Pepin want to avoid a military confrontation if it wasn't necessary, but it seems that he also wasn't entirely sure that the nobles and magnates of Francia would support sending armies to Italy. So he's already agreed with it, but he's just like, hmm, if I don't have to do this, it's fine. The Franks had also historically held alliances with the Lombards, so alienating them on behalf of the Pope was probably an undesirable outcome for some. And there were others who were already quite suspicious of the power of the new king and didn't really feel like giving him more. But in the end, Aistolf openly rejects any attempt that Pepin makes for diplomacy and Pepin won the support of the nobles to send support at a council in Kiersey in April. So, force it was going to be. But before Pepin and his troops departed, in July 754, to cement their new bond, Pope Stephen II reconsecrated and anointed Pepin as King of the Franks, his wife Bertrada as Queen, and his sons, Carloman and Charlemagne, as the rightful dynastic heirs of the crown. Carlemagne and Charlotte. There is one letter. <laughs> well, okay. They are spelt fairly different. So it's Carloman and Charlemagne, which is, again, you know, Charlemagne is a name. We call him after the fact. He was Charles, right? Charles the Great. So Carloman and Charles. One is Carl and one is Charles. Who does that? That is George Foreman all over. Uh, no. I'm introducing you here to the Carolingians, Fry. You're going to be saying that a lot because they, you know they have like three complain, names. I would complain, but my husband's name is John and his brother's name is Joe. <laughs> it still happens. It still happens. And the rest of all of the Carolingians that we're going to deal with have like one of four names and we're just going to repeat them. So you think you're done with this? No. I'm not ready. Don't want it. I'm going to forget. This is even worse than the Constans, Constantine, Constantius. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, at least on that point, we're now in the area of great epithets. So even if they have the same names, they're going to have a the blank attached to it. So it helps kind of distinguish. We'll have a Charles the Great and so on and so forth. And we'll use those a lot to differentiate. Pope Stephen II has reconsecrated and anointed Pepin as king, 
Bertrada as queen, and Carloman and Charlemagne as the rightful dynastic heirs to the crown, and he basically forbids anyone else from wearing the crown. This is a big moment. It is the first historically verifiable crowning of a king by a pope. And this is a major moment and a perfect example of political propaganda and symbolic myth-making at work, which is the absolute bread and butter of the Carolingians. And I want to make Rutger proud because he sent me so much source material and helped so much with the Frankish papacy. So I want to talk about this for a minute. Okay. I mean, just because you had the source, let's... I know. I'm so excited about having sources and help. So the Pope is now confirming the consecration of a secular leader, thereby affirming him as the right and true leader with the symbolic approval of God. This lent a huge amount of moral authority to anything that Pepin or his sons might do, and a massive amount of aspersion on anyone who should question them. We've now turned kingship into something close to divinity. The anointing of the king, called the sac, becomes so substantial in the concept of Frankish-slash-French kingship that it becomes the most important aspect of any French coronation ceremony, and builds directly into the idea of divine right of kings, which becomes the entire mantra of the French monarchy. So we are talking literal paradigm shifting moment here. Huge, 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 huge. But it's gonna get huger still, because Stephen also titles the Carolingian family with the title Patricius Romanorum, or Patrician of the Romans, a title dating back to Emperor Constantine, used to mark the highest Roman military officers. And it is now being given to Pepin and his sons as a recognition of Pepin's defense of Rome, further tying them to the significant legacy of power and empire emphasis. That is an emphasis. Empire? <laughs> empire, right? He's now... The patrician of the Romans, we're talking about empire. This is going, holy Roman emperor, we're almost there. <laughs> very, very important. And then, because this is not important enough quite yet, after the consecration, Pepin led his army to meet Aistulf at Pavia and forced the Lombard king into retreat, protecting Rome from invasion and winning back Ravenna and the Pentapolis cities but not encroaching into understood Lombard territory. So he just took back what had most recently been taken. The Pope then returned to Rome, arriving in October, and Pepin returned his troops to Francia. But as soon as the Franks were out of sight, Aistulf whipped back around and launched a new assault. Because that's how the Lombards do. And this time, the Lombards make it all the way to Rome by January of 756, capturing towns outside the walls and preparing for a full-scale assault. It's not good. They're, they're at the gates of Rome again. But as soon as Rome had known that they were coming, the Pope had written to Pepin, who crossed the Alps for a second time and drove Aistulf away from Rome, this time taking away even more territory from the Lombard king 
like Romagna and the duchies of Spoleto and Benevento, who allied directly with Pepin against Aistolf. Now, essentially, everything that was between Ravenna and Rome was back out of Lombard hands. They now have that dumbbell (laughs) back out of Lombard control. And just as an aside, but an important one, while the territories were being wrested away, Pepin received an imperial legate who made it clear to the Frankish king that Ravenna, the exarchate, and all the one territory belonged to the Byzantine Empire and should be handed over to them. This bit that you've just won back for us, even though we haven't come to defend it ourselves, that's ours. We'll take that back. But this was dismissed by the Frankish king, who intended to maintain the agreement he'd made with Pope Stephen. So he issues a public and written donation of all the one territory to the Pope in perpetuity, which becomes known as the Donation of Pepin. So this legally and officially made the Pope the secular temporal ruler beyond the scope of Rome, and was laid in the Confessio of St. Peter's tomb to signify its very solemn and serious intention. Although we talked about how the papal states, quote-unquote, were technically founded in theory in the time of Pope Gregory III, this is the moment where things actually kick off as papal states, with an actual significant chunk of land that the Pope now rules as sovereign or king. And I do mean a significant chunk, as it crosses the middle of Italy diagonally, reaching from one coast on the Tyrrhenian Sea to the other on the Adriatic Sea. And let's remember that key word there, sovereign. The Pope is now in control of all the territory that used to be held by the Byzantines, which means that the Byzantine Empire no longer has any foothold in Italy, and therefore no more influence to push against the Pope with. And I actually have a map for you to show you what kind of territory this is. So all of that purpliness, the Pope is now the secular ruler in control of. Oh no, I'm so mad. You told me purple, but it's all purple. We got some got some lilac, we've got some lavender we've got some mauve (laughs) which one you want (laughs) i mean you are not wrong at all these are all shades of purple are they not but (laughs) what i meant in that is that the two darkest shades of purple that kind of diagonal across okay so you can see if you if you go over the map there's a little color guide and the one that says donation of pepin is all that was added it's a huge chunk it is a big chunk What is that really bright neon purple in the corner? Oh, that's Benevento. I don't know why it's neon purple like that. Uh, (laughs) It's just like a little neon thumb. All this purple belongs to the Pope, but it doesn't. Only the dark purple. (laughs) Well, the light purple, the, the two lighter purples, will definitely become part of the Papal States over time. And you can see that, look at these dates together, you can see that they're all quite close together. So we have the donation of Pippin in 757, and then we have acquisitions starting in 757 to 774. So this is all coming into the papal scope fairly soon-ish. Technically, the mauve and the lavender are the same darkness, but we won't go into that. I mean, I suppose. Don't you turn into a color theory on me. This is about 
the point where maybe you should start feeling the parallels to Pope Sylvester, because this should be bringing to mind the donation of Constantine. Yeah. And if you have not heard about the donation of Constantine since you've listened to episode 35, <laughs> you fry. The donation of Constantine was a document outlining Emperor Constantine the Great's confirmation of the primacy of the Pope and his donation of the territory of Rome and the Western Imperial provinces to Pope Sylvester. We might be thinking, why are the donation of Pepin and the donation of Constantine so incredibly similar? Well, this is because the donation of Constantine was almost certainly a Frankish forgery that was created either during this papacy or in the next papacy as a mean to sort of lending greater weight and setting a historical precedent for the Pope holding temporal power. Fake. Yeah, we talked about it at the time about how it was fake, but, you know, it was all we had to talk about, so we did it anyways. This is to bolster up this claim that the Pope has a, a precedent and a claim to temporal power, and by having Pepin repeat an action allegedly taken by Constantine the Emperor, he is now perceived on the same level as someone like Constantine the Great, one of the most revered emperors in history. So again, incredible example of symbolic myth-making that becomes such a huge part of the papacy and the Frankish Empire in this time. We're going to have a lot more to say about that as time goes on, but suffice to say, massive changes are being made. But none of this is going to stop Aistolf from plotting and preparing for more assaults, right? This Lombard king, nothing is going to stop him except death, because he died at the end of 756, quote, unquote, struck by a divine blow while hunting. Oh, a divine blow? A divine blow while hunting. This is, again, quoted from the Liber Pontificalis author, who clearly hates Aistolf so much. Remember all those epithets I mentioned at the beginning? They're, every time, it's like, the wicked heretic Aistolf of his loathsome name. So the fact that Man, he... Man, <laughs> lots of salt there, I guess. So much salt. But unfortunately, this started a new series of Lombard problems, because after the death of Aistolf, there is an immediate rivalry between two claimants, the Duke of Istra and Tuscany, Desiderius, and Rachus, Aistolf's brother. And if you have keen hearing, this is the same Rachus we mentioned at the beginning, who had already been king and then abdicated to come to Rome to be a monk at Monte Cassino seven years earlier. So now that Aistolf was dead, it seemed that he was fully prepared to take himself out of monastic retirement and reclaim the Lombard kingdom. He left the monastery in Rome and took over the royal palace at Pavia and held the support of many Lombard nobles who mistrusted Desiderius. And with the incredible benefit of foresight, they should mistrust this man. But... Unfortunately, at the time, Desiderius does appear to be the more legitimate successor, especially because Rachus has already abdicated. And so Desiderius decides to go to the Pope to ask for support. This is a pretty big change over a couple years, you know, they, from, from constantly being at the gates of Rome attacking, now this new Lombard claimant is like, hey, Pope, you want to help me out? 
And now that the Pope had the Frankish backing and secular territory he was legitimately in control of, meant that the Pope was now a significant player in Italy and not just in Rome. As historian Raymond Davis notes, Stephen's ability to offer troops to Desiderius is a remarkable sign of papal control and its acceptance in and around Rome. Big things are happening. So Stephen agrees to support Desiderius, on the condition that Desiderius return certain Lombard-held papal patrimonies to the Pope, and to provide, quote-unquote, plentiful gifts, aka money and tribute, to the Pope. So once Desiderius agrees, Pope Stephen sends his brother and a Frankish ambassador to Desiderius to act as support and organize troops under papal approval. And then he personally writes to Ratchis, urging him to honor his monastic vows, which shouldn't be broken under any circumstance. You're a monk. Once you commit to being a monk, you must be a monk forever. Pope Gregory I is rolling over in his grave because that's all he wanted in life. So Ratchis was convinced by the Pope, or at least by understanding that if the Pope was supporting Desiderius with troops, then Pepin would do the same, and he had no shot. So he just returns to his monastery. Peace is restored, Desiderius was the new Lombard king, and he did cede some territory to the Pope, including Faenza, Ferrera, and Cavello, but he doesn't wholly fulfill his promise because he keeps Bologna and Imola, which should have gone to the Pope. But Desiderius is going to be king for a while yet, and we will have more course to deal with him in future episodes and determine whether he will maintain the Pope's support or not. Spoiler, not so much. And just as everything is starting to look really good, and the government is establishing itself, he has to deal with an unusual situation that arose with the Archbishop of Ravenna, Sergius. It's always Ravenna. During the upheaval in Ravenna of being taken over by the Lombards and then being won back from the Lombards, Sergius was elected to be the new bishop of Ravenna. But he wasn't a cleric. Agnellus, our dramatic writer of the Liber Pontificalis Ecclesiae Ravenatus, tells us that he was a married layman. Just some dude. Why he was elected then to be bishop is unclear, but it seems to be the result of the shifting secular control in Ravenna from the exarchate to the Pope, right? Everything is shifting around, and no one knows what to do, so they're like, hey, some guy. So he gets made a bishop in Ravenna, and once he's a bishop, he goes ahead and makes his wife a deaconess, just so that he can keep her close. Now, this in itself is, is, is not good, but Sergius also doesn't get along with his clergy at all. And when they refuse to work with him, he would just replace them by making new priests that he had no authority to actually make. So we know that Sergius is fairly headstrong. And Thomas Hodgkin, author of Italy and Her Invaders, indicates that this headstrong obstinacy probably is what caught the attention of the Pope, who might not have noticed otherwise. And he saw the potential that a bishop like this would probably go the whole way to trying to fight to be independent from the Pope. This is something that happens in Ravenna anyways, 
And now we have this fighty man who shouldn't be in this position, and he's just, you know, making his own rules. He's fighting. A super double blow to Steven, because Steven's currently trying to cement power over the area now that he is both the religious and secular leader of Ravenna. So he sees this as a problem. And it's not entirely clear how this all comes about, but it seems that Stephen used the irregular election of Sergius as a good reason to summon him to Rome to investigate the matter. And once Sergius was there, he's just arrested and detained in Rome, at least until the death of Pope Stephen. You can't really be a problem for us in Ravenna if we just put you in prison here. I mean, I guess that's a choice. It's a choice. It's not a very above board choice, but it is what happens. And we're not quite sure how it rectifies out, because then Pope Stephen II died on April 26th of 757. Stephen, you useless bastard. (laughs) He was buried in the pavement of the Atrium of St. Peter's. In the pavement? Well, a lot of them are in the pavement. That's, That's not unusual to be low, but that's where he is. And his epitaph was destroyed. We only have a small inscription that reads, the Roman Pope Stephen II lies under here. Just taking a nap. So that is Stephen II, and now it is time to rate him. Although I'm not feeling very optimistic since you just said, Pope Stephen, you useless bastard. <laughs> I sure did. Papatum infallium. So in many of these categories, we're going to have quite a lot to discuss in terms of implication, and papatum infallium is no exception. The big one. Pope Stephen frees the papacy from the control of Byzantium into the new alliance with the Franks. Which, you know, it's reliance to alliance to reliance, but this is a huge, huge deal. And this is going to have huge impacts on secular impactum, but we also have to consider the impact on the church. This is an unprecedented level of influence and power for the church Because the church is now essentially a government. And we're not just talking de facto controlling Rome and the patrimonies. This is now an actual government. And the Pope's authority has taken on a new level. He can now govern and regulate a large part of Italy. Which we will talk about in Secular Impactum. But this this is prestige. And in theory, the Pope can now make theological decisions about orthodoxy without fear of reprisal from the emperor. Should there be reprisals of any kind, he can now defend himself and enforce canon law. He now has actual troops to bolster whatever actual papal decision he makes. This is implication more than reality, because on a theological and religious front, Stephen isn't actually contributing anything. We don't have any councils or edicts or anything like that, but... He's increased the actual power of the papacy. Definitely worth some good points. The papacy is now a government. Hmm. And it now has the might to defend itself. So if, if, let's say, iconoclasm is happening and the Pope goes, nah, we're not about that life, the emperor can't... He can't just get taken away again. Exactly. He now has the ability to enforce that. I don't know, I'll give him like an eight. That seems fair. I think an eight is about right because, again, like we said, this is implicative, but it, it, we're going to see it more in action with other popes, but he sets the standard. So I think an eight is good. He'll get a 16 in Papatum and Phallium. 
Fructus Prohibitum. So he arrests the Bishop of Ravenna, Sergius, indefinitely. And maybe nepotism with his brother? I mean, he uses his brother quite a lot, but he's using somebody he trusts. And his brother did grow up in the church and does have his own merit, as we shall see. Maybe like a two? So if you're going to give him a two, I'm going to give him one. Three seems high, but it's okay. So he'll get a three in Fructus Prohibitum. Yeah, I mean, it's not super high considering. Yeah, that's true. We have a lot of zeros on the board. He did indefinitely arrest that man. Indefinitely arrested a whole man, but that man was, I don't know, somewhere in between simony and... I don't know what else. Corruption? I mean, uncanonical consecration, for one, because he's not even a cleric. He's married. He may- yeah, it- yeah. I mean, I don't know if that means arrested indefinitely. I mean, I get the impression from the sources that he was released, but he was not allowed to maintain the bishopric. But, you know, still not great. So, there's that. Three points for Fructus Prohibitum. Seculari Impactum. This- is where he's gonna get the major points, because his diplomacy with the Franks changes the course of history in Italy, and not just for the Pope. Rome is no longer beholden to the Empire, which has time and time again done very little to support or protect it. It now has influence and control over more than just the city, but all of the territory of the Exarchate and the Pentapolis. The Pope is now temporarily independent and essentially a king. This is the real creation moment of the Papal States and a massive shift where now leaders will have to practice diplomacy with the Pope to get much done in Italy. The shift already took hold, too, because as soon as Aistolf dies, we see Desiderius coming to the Pope to support him in the struggle for the Lombard Kingdom and that meant enough that Ratchus chose to concede, because he's like, oh, the Pope is going to support Desiderius, so it doesn't matter how I feel because I'm going to lose anyways. And moreover, the tie with the Franks is going to lead to massive gains in power for both the Franks and the Pope, as the Frankish Empire is going to become the largest European kingdom since the Western Roman Empire rolled right into the Holy Roman Empire, so... The Franks have very skillfully attached themselves to the Pope, who can legitimize them with moral authority, with the approval of God. Yes, God has approved of you. Yeah, we're, we're talking about, like, legitimizing monarchical rule on any level, and the Pope has now won a defensive army that is essentially, in this moment, at his beck and call. We will see how that works out, but in this moment it has. He called Pepin. Pepin came twice. It cannot be overstated. There is no way for me that this is not a 10 out of 10. Okay. A 10 out of 10 feels saucy. I don't I don't want to give him that much. Maybe like an 8. I don't know. Like, he can call the Franks, but it's not like he has his own army yet. But he kind of does have his own army because he does give troops to Desiderius in support of him against Ratchet's Where are as these troops coming from? Where do you find... They initially came from Pepin and the Franks, but... All right, they are Frankish troops. They are, they are, but they are now the post to command. And I will remind you that you were not very impressed with Zachary, but you gave him a 10 in this category for starting the Carolingian dynasty. And now it's 
papal states in Carolingian dynasty. Okay, okay, fine. We can give him ten. Give him what you want. You can stand. I'm don't, just <laughs> no, 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 no. A ten. All right. So then he will get a twenty out of twenty. I'll for... roll another one. <laughs> well, that's a whole other thing. We're not even there yet. Fossium Sanctus. This, again, because he is a significant pope, we have a lot to look at. So let's look at his traditional image and judge him first. Oh, is he napping? <laughs> He's having a slip. So, um, I don't know if you ever watched My Name is Errol. No. Look, it's, it's a really dumb show about a redneck learning about karma for the first time in his life. Okay. And he spends all the episodes trying to fix his karmatic footprint. Okay. But every single photo of him, the running gag is that he blinks when the flash goes off. <laughs> so every single photo of the, the guy, Earl, is just him with his eyes closed. Well, I mean, you would have to blink for a very long time to have your portrait have painted. Your portrait painted that way. And even then, they usually you know, take some liberties and pretend the eyes are open. It's not a one-for-one one to your portrait since you have to sit so long. Well, in this case, it definitely is, and he is definitely having a slip. So <laughs> how are you feeling about? He's very propped up. That's he definitely is. like a nap face. Like, I feel like his face should be more buried into his chest. It does kind of look like he is resting a little bit, you know, like that the thing when your head just slightly starts to dip, he's on the way. This is how people sleep in K-dramas. Oh no, they fell asleep. He's sitting straight up. <laughs> that man is not asleep. So what do you want to give our sleeping Pope? Uh, you mean fake sleeping Pope. Fake sleeping Pope. I'll give him a, a four. Okay. All right. I don't know, I, feel, I, I kind of enjoy it, so I'm going to give him a 6, so he'll get a 10. When divided out, that gives him His a 2.5. His bunny poop is forever, or <laughs> it's just by itself. It is so by itself, and it looks like it, it almost, if you look at the shading just right, it looks like it could be a jerry curl instead of a bunny poof because of the round shading around yeah, it. Yeah, it does have a very, he's got like a baby, a single baby hair. A single baby hair, yes. Exactly. So here is our other terrible artist. It's just whatever. However, because, again, he anointed and consecrated Pepin as King of the Franks, we have so many images of this happening, so I'm just going to start sending them to you. That hat is so bad. That hat looks like a bullet. It's super misshapen. It's not good. So you stopped playing Fall Guys with us, but they released a skin that's just like a, a bullet. <laughs> and it does look like the bean is a penis. <laughs> well, so we've been calling them penises whenever we see them. Amazing. Oh, I'm going to have to to update it so that I can go and find a penis. Find me a penis. They're real. They'll find you. They're the worst. They grab you and push you off things. Anyone wearing a penis skin is a bane. Is a penis. That's that's <laughs> a why. Penis. Oh man. So here is one consecration of Pepin with Stephen. Pepin looks like he belongs in a fantasy novel. Yeah, that he definitely has that old world sort of Frankish Frankishness about him. 
They're all different, by the way. There is absolutely no consistency in this image. Pepin's sitting in a chair and the Pope is on like a stool going, A. <laughs> and it looks entirely different. Okay, here's another one. I said there, there's a lot. So this one is from a chocolate company that puts historical moments on the box. I tried to find it. Pepin looks like a combination of a Lord of the Rings character and a ballet dancer this time. Straight up, yeah, like Valkyrie helmet. It's this is this is opera style for sure. Here's another. So this is this is his wife and Carloman and Charlemagne here in the back. You can see them. Carl and Charles. Carl and Charles are there. One of them looks like he's gonna leave. She's got a real good grip on him. He's a bit farther away from the other. You stand still. Notice too that one of them is wearing a crown, but not the other. So the smaller one. Rude. Well, I mean that's that gives you a pretty strong indication of who is who in this image. <laughs> so yeah, one of them is that mangy boy. So here is the last one. This is Pepin and Stephen in the Cathedral of Brussels. Their chins are doing a thing. Chins are every doing... single one of their chins. Oh, you're right. You're right. Those chins are becoming sentient for sure. <laughs> yeah, I had to zoom in on it, but yeah. It's either that or they all have a very prominent facial tumor. They all have it. Every single person in this image has a Jay Leno chin. That's some unfortunate local genetics. I'm just, that's not, that's not good. So those are all the images that I have put aside for you. Lots to look at. Lots of court. I, I'm sure there's more too. These are just the ones that stuck out. Tempus Pontificus. March 26th, 752 to April 26th, 757. Five years and a score of 1.25. That is quite a lot to do in five years. All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. This one is a little bit shocking because he is not a saint. Mm, why? I just couldn't find anything about him being a saint. He's just not a saint. He's not one of the popes that have thusly been canonized, which feels like an oversight. Hey, Pope Francis, were you aware? Yeah, well, and Pope Francis could. Well, actually, it's not part of our Pope Watch, but today uh, Pope Francis did confirm a new secretary for the Order of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. You, sir, were you aware? Maybe we need to send him a message. Hey, we believe that this is an oversight. And this brings us to his total score, which is a very impressive 42.75. Wow. So that puts him in sixth place, which also means that he has now knocked Pope Zachary out of the top 10. Well, now you can stop complaining. Well, that was kind of my solace about Zachary not getting the papal bull. was like, oh, he's going to be in the top 10 for a while. That didn't last very. So um, that's a thing that's happened. Now I have to ask you if you think that he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull. <sighs> God, these look, I don't know. I'm not feeling these. I grabbed land and I'm worry popes. I don't like them. Oh, okay. Well, then we, again, just like Zachary, we are going to have to go to divine I intervention. Don't enjoy these popes. These are not the popes I want to talk about. 
hey, this is going to happen for a while. So, I mean, there will be some. Don't worry. There's some good stuff coming. But this this is a man who deserves a papal bull. And so let's see what divine intervention has to say about it. All right. Eleven. Oh, so that means he gets it. I would have been so cheesed if these last two popes both rolled really low. But he... As a result of his 11 in the 11 and over category, he has won his papal bull. Congratulations, Pope Stephen II. But this is not the end of our episode because we have a very, very brief Pope watch to do because I want to tell you all that as of January 15th, both Pope Francis and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI have now received their first dose of the coronavirus vaccine. Yay. And this is also great news because we've had a couple COVID misfortunes in our little Vatican favorites, and we can confirm that Cardinal Conrad Kraduski, who was hospitalized for COVID-19, was in the hospital for 10 days, but has now recovered and is home. And when he was released from the hospital, the Pope gifted him an Argentinian steak as a get well present. Delicious. I hope you can taste. Well, I hope he can taste too, because Cardinal Robin Hood really deserves that extra bit of care and attention because we love him. And this is also following the Pope's personal doctor. Fabrizio Sicorsi, who passed away from COVID on January 10th of this year. So it's, it's very nice to hear that the Pope has been vaccinated. And this brings us to some very special thank yous. So first, we have some patrons to absolve of their temporal punishments. And so we need to say thank you to Bayar B and Loris Van Rijn. Ego te absolvo. I also want to do a huge shout out, of course, to Rutger K, Dr. Rutger Kramer, who has been our biggest supporter during the Carolingian period, which is absolutely wonderful of him. And he has put me in contact with other people who have also been absolutely wonderful. So thank you very much. And I also want to give a quick shout out to a new podcast, If You Speak German, from one of our patrons and a listener who has been in healthy correspondence and given me a lot of information as well. So if you speak German, you should check out Die Welt der Spätnanike, which is the world of antiquity in German. Check it out. Shrouded in antiquity. <laughs> that should be their tagline. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com and we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifax on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifaxwishlist, or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.